All right. Today we want to return to the subject of medical marijuana, and in particular we want to mark the 10-year anniversary of an important government report that was issued by the Institute of Medicine on the subject of marijuana in 1999. As most of you know, uh, the Cato Institute has been quite active and quite critical of the federal government's war on drugs over the years. Over the past few months, we've addressed different aspects of the war. A few months ago, we highlighted the problem of these reckless, no-knock raids, which too often result in unnecessary violence. Last month, my colleague uh, Ted Carpenter published a report on the bloodshed in Mexico and how the violent drug cartels are becoming richer and more powerful because of the black market profits that are made possible by the prohibition model. There's a copy of that report outside, which I hope you picked up, but you can get a copy on the way out as well. Next month, we are going to be releasing a new report on the drug policies in Portugal. Back in 2001, uh, Portugal decriminalized all drugs, including uh, cocaine and heroin. Some people said that that was going to be a big mistake. They said if you liberalize, drug use is going to spike, and that country is going to become a haven for drug tourists. But uh, they were wrong. And the author of that study, Glenn Greenwald, who writes, uh, is a writer at Salon and is a constitutional attorney, he's going to be coming to Cato to discuss his findings. So please mark your calendars for that. He's going to be coming here to discuss this report on Portugal on April 3rd. But today we do want to focus on medical marijuana, and we have a first-rate panel of experts here to address this subject. Before I introduce the first speaker, I'd like to take just a minute or two to lay something of a foundation for our discussion. But before I do that, I would like to ask those of you who came with cell phones, would you please take a moment and double-check and make sure that they are turned off uh, as a courtesy to our speakers. I always include the panel on that. Mm -hmm. That has that right. happened. Right. <laughs> All right. Thank you for reminding me, too. <laughs> Good move. Now, of all the various uh, aspects of drug policy, the international aspects and the many different uh, domestic aspects of, of the war on drugs, I think the subject of medical marijuana has really been a flashpoint in the entire debate. In 1996, drug reformers were able to get medical marijuana initiatives on the ballot in both California and Arizona. And when the voters approved those initiatives over the, over the objections of the drug czar, it was really a pivotal moment because it marked the first time in more than 15 years that the drug reformers had scored a political victory. Uh, for each year prior to that, it seemed like we're in this never-ending escalation of the war on drugs. It was more money, more police, more criminal laws. Let's stiffen the penalties, pour more money into the drug war effort. This was the first time where there was a move towards de-escalation. And we were going to say, like, in this one limited area, let's dispense with the threat of criminal prosecution in situations where a doctor recommends marijuana for a patient for medical purposes. Now, this set up a confrontation with the federal government because what they were doing with the initiatives was changing state law. They changed state law in California and Arizona. But the federal law did not change, and the federal law said marijuana had no accepted medical use in the United States, and in their federal criminal law, possession of marijuana was still illegal. There was no exceptions for medical purposes. So we had this conflict and confrontation set up between the laws in some, some of the states and what the laws were at the federal level. So the federal government responded to these initiatives in two basic ways. 
First, they started to lean on doctors. The government let it be known that the medical licenses for physicians would be revoked if they were to discuss the benefits of marijuana and recommend marijuana to certain patients. To be precise, though, the government was not going to threaten any doctor who told a patient that medical marijuana wasn't going to help your situation and that you should stay away from it. What they were going to do was punish a particular point of view for situations in which a doctor would tell a patient that marijuana might help that person, a specific patient. Now, this led immediately to constitutional litigation over basic uh, principles of the attorney-client or not the attorney-client, the physician-client relationship, and basic principles of free speech. So this went into the courts, and in 2002, a federal appellate court ruled that the drug czar's policy of coming down and leaning on the doctors in this way struck at the core of the First Amendment and struck down that policy as unconstitutional. Now, the second thing that the drug czar did was he asked the Institute of Medicine to review the scientific evidence of the medical use of marijuana because they were beginning to think that other states were going to possibly follow California and Arizona. So one of the other things that they did was ask the Institute of Medicine to review all of the literature on marijuana and its potential uh, medicinal use. Now, this year-long study included scientific workshops, analysis of the relevant scientific literature, extensive consultation with biomedical and social scientists. And the end result was a 250-page report that cautiously supported the medical use of marijuana for patients who met certain criteria. Now, the medical community is still divided over the scope of these conditions and the exact types of patients that fall within this category. What we want to do today is discuss the impact of that report, but more importantly, the developments that have taken place over the last 10 years, both in terms of the medical research and uh, the political climate. So with that background in mind, let's turn now to our panel of experts. Our first speaker today is Dr. Donald Abrams. Uh, Dr. Abrams is a cancer specialist, and he presently serves as the director of clinical programs at the University of California's San Francisco Medical Center. He also serves as the chief Chief of Hematology and Oncology at San Francisco General Hospital, where he has worked since 1983. Dr. Abrams has been in the forefront of HIV and AIDS research and treatment. He provides integrative medical consultations and has done extensive research in complementary and alternative therapies, including the medical use of marijuana. Dr. Abrams is a graduate of the Stanford Medical School. So would you please welcome our first speaker, Dr. Donald Abrams. Thank you, Tim. And as an MD, I find it hard to speak without slides, so hopefully the projector will come down and so you can see uh, what I'm talking about. It's a pleasure uh, to be here to talk about medical marijuana research 10 years after the Institute of Medicine report. I was one of the people that was uh, participated in the report when it first uh, uh, was being, information was being collected. And what I'd like to do is... Uh, take some of the statements from the uh, book that was published uh, by the um, group that did the report and look and see what we've done uh, at that time, since that time. So in 1999, it was suggested that the accumulated data indicate a potential therapeutic value for cannabinoid drugs in the areas of pain relief, control of nausea and vomiting, and appetite stimulation. It was mentioned that the effects of uh, tetrahydrocannabinol Dronabinol or Marinol, which was licensed and approved 
1986 had been best established. That's easy because it's very difficult to do research with the whole plant. The effects of cannabinoids were said to be generally modest. Usually there are more effective medications. They also mentioned that people do vary in their response to different medications. There will likely always be a subpopulation of patients who don't respond well to other treatments. And they mentioned that the the combination of cannabinoid drug effects, decreasing anxiety, increasing appetite, decreasing nausea, and decreasing pain, suggests that cannabinoids may be moderately well-suited for conditions such as chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting and the so-called AIDS-wasting syndrome. When the report was issued in 1999, we still were just at the beginning of having effective therapies for patients with HIV, and the wasting syndrome is something uh, that we did try to investigate uh, at San Francisco General Hospital, uh, submitting two proposals to the government to study smoked marijuana uh, either compared to dronabinol or compared to marijuana placebo. Uh, These two studies submitted in 1994 and 1996 were both turned down uh, by the government. Uh, I ultimately learned uh, that NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which is the only legal source of marijuana for research, has a congressional mandate to only supply marijuana to study as a substance of abuse and not as a potential therapeutic agent. So in 1997, after the first effective AIDS therapies, protease inhibitors became available, and there was a report in the literature of somebody dying from an overdose of a protease inhibitor and the drug ecstasy. Uh, That opened up a new avenue of exploration. In 1997, we submitted a proposal to NIDA to study the safety of smoked cannabis in association with patients taking protease inhibitors. And since this was not an efficacy trial, we ultimately did receive uh, the go-ahead to do the study. Uh, The study, again, was to determine the safety and toxicity profile of cannabinoids, both smoked and oral, in patients with HIV infection, with the question being, is there a metabolic interaction between cannabinoids and protease inhibitors or cannabinoids and the immune system that may alter the level of the AIDS virus in the bloodstream after 21 days of exposure. And then we were going to compare the effect of smoked versus the oral cannabinoid. While we had the patients in our general clinical research center for 25 days, we also were going to look at things like weight and appetite as well. And the study, this is a busy slide. Basically, we enrolled 62 patients uh, randomized to receive smoke marijuana, uh, dronabinol, or dronabinol placebo. And across the top line, you see a lot of zeros. That's the change in the HIV viral load. So there is no change in viral load. The next two lines are looking at the immune system cells. And in fact, in the cannabinoid recipients, we actually saw some benefit to the immune system in patients smoking or taking the Marinol. And in weight, across the bottom, the placebo group gained 1.1 kilograms over the 25 days of the study, where both of the cannabinoid groups gained three or more kilograms. There was no impact on the blood level of the protease inhibitors. So with this information that cannabis was safe in patients with HIV and protease inhibitors, we next turned to see if it had any efficacy in any medical condition. Nerve damage from either HIV or the drugs that we use to treat it 
results in a painful situation where people have numbness and pain in their hands and toes, so-called peripheral neuropathy. The treatment for this is difficult. Opioids don't work. Acupuncture didn't work. Nonsteroidals are not particularly effective. Most people wind up using an anticonvulsant, which may in and of itself interact with the AIDS drugs. There are preclinical models of neuropathic pain in mice that suggest that cannabinoids may be effective, and patients anecdotally told us that when they used smoked cannabis, they had relief of their neuropathic pain. So we did conduct a placebo-controlled trial of cannabis in painful HIV-associated sensory neuropathy, which was published in the August journal Neurology uh, in 2007. Uh, In this study, as well as asking patients what the effect of smoking cannabis in our GCRC uh, was on their uh, uh, neuropathic pain, we also created an experimental pain model that would be much less objective, where we heated the patient's forearm to 40 degrees Celsius and then applied capsaicin cream. This produces an area around that spot that has funny feelings that we can map out with a brush. And then we did that before and after smoking because we felt that people might suggest that our patients were going to try to bias the study in favor of the smoked cannabis versus the placebo. These are the results that we published in neurology. Uh, you can see that the, uh, the bottom line is the reduction in pain in patients smoking real cannabis. They had a 33% reduction in pain compared to a 16% reduction in the patient smoking placebo. Similarly, uh, the bottom two uh, boxes here show the effect on the experimental pain model, showing that those who smoked placebo had no change in the area of unusual feeling around the heated capsaicin-painted skin, whereas those who smoked cannabis had, again, about a 30% reduction. The top left-hand corner shows the impact of smoking the first cannabis cigarette on the patient's neuropathic pain, the first cigarette. The cannabis group on the bottom had a 75% reduction on smoking the first cigarette, whereas the placebo group only had a 19% reduction after the first cigarette. So we concluded from this study that smoked cannabis is an effective treatment in patients with painful HIV-related peripheral neuropathy. It was also effective in attenuating the experimental pain model, and by comparison, the effect of cannabis on neuropathic pain is equal to the effect of the most widely used agent in standard practice. Now, the Institute of Medicine back in 1999 also said that clinical trials of cannabinoid drugs for symptom management should be conducted with the goals of developing rapid-onset, reliable, safe delivery systems. So one of the next studies we did was looking at vaporization of cannabis using the so-called volcano vaporizer. Basically, this is a heating device and a fan. Cannabis is put in a chamber, and then it's turned on, and it inflates a a balloon-like structure that's attached to a one-way valve so that patients can inhale the vapor. THC, uh, the active ingredient in cannabis, vaporizes at a lower temperature than it burns. The vaporizer heats the cannabis to below the burning point, so the vapors are cooler, purer, and probably less toxic than smoke, and they, in fact, may be more potent uh, because less of the THC is burnt off uh, through combustion. 
Uh, this study was one of the easiest studies we ever enrolled. Uh, we looked for 21 to 45-year-old healthy marijuana smokers who were currently smoking uh, but had smoked within 30 days, but a total of less than 10 cigarettes or the equivalent. We did ask them to abstain from smoking prior to being admitted to our general clinical research center. On each of six days, uh, the individuals participating in the study smoked or vaporized half of a night of cigarette, three different strains of THC. And we measured their THC levels, expired carbon monoxide, which is a measure of exposure to nox- noxious gases, the physiologic effect, and the, and the preferences. And this was uh, published in uh, Nature uh, Clinical Therapeutics and Pharmacology. Uh, this shows you uh, at each of the three different strengths of THC that the level of THC in the bloodstream was superimposable, whether the cannabis was smoked as a half a cigarette or inhaled through the vaporizer. We looked at expired carbon monoxide. The flat, flat bottom line is in patients using the vaporizer. There was no increase in expired carbon monoxide. You can see there was a transient increase in those smoking the combusted plant material. And then we looked at the subjective high. Uh, this is something that the paper reviewers had a little bit of difficulty with, wanting to know what, how we validated this high. It's a difficult thing to explain. But anyway, uh, we found that uh, the uh, vaporized group and the smoke group had exactly the same physiologic effect. And as it turned out, patients 14 out of 18 participating preferred the vaporizer uh, to smoking the cigarettes. So we concluded that vaporization of cannabis is a safe and effective mode of delivery. Plasma THC levels are comparable. Physiologic effects are comparable. Expired carbon monoxide is decreased. Participants, again, had a clear preference, and vaporization of cannabis could be used as a delivery system in clinical effectiveness trials. So the current study that we're just about to complete uh, at the end of this month is a study looking at the interaction between cannabinoids and opioids. We know that cannabinoids produce pain relief working through a different mechanism in the brain than the opioids do. Uh, In mice and rats, it's been shown that the cannabinoids greatly enhance the analgesic effect of morphine in a synergistic fashion so that the sum of the parts is greater than the parts, and it's a boosted fashion. So there's a possibility that we could use cannabinoids to allow patients taking opioids for pain relief to have a longer period of time before they develop uh, tolerance uh, to the drug. So the study that we're currently uh, completing is looking at the effect of vaporized cannabis on the blood levels of sustained-release morphine and sustained-release oxycodone. We're also looking at the effect of the vaporized cannabis on pain and also looking at the effect on side effects that are associated with opioids, such as nausea and constipation. The study is now fully enrolled, and the data from the pharmacokinetics uh, is still pending at this time. But I can tell you as the investigator who's seen all the patients that definitely adding the cannabinoids cannabinoids to their opioids has had a significant change in their level of pain. The Institute of Medicine, in their report 10 years ago, said, again, the goal of clinical trials of smoke marijuana would not be to develop it as a licensed drug, but as a first step towards the development of non-smoked, rapid-onset cannabinoid delivery systems. Well, I don't know if the volcano counts as that. 
They say this may take years. In the meantime, there are patients with debilitating symptoms for whom smoke marijuana may provide relief. I am an oncologist. As has been stated, I've been treating cancer patients for 28 years. Every day, I see cancer patients with pain, nausea, loss of appetite, depression, insomnia, anxiety, and depression. This is one medicine that can treat all of these symptoms. Oncologists for years have been in favor of allowing patients to access cannabis. I'm currently on the board of an oncology newspaper where we're in the midst of doing a poll of oncologists asking them this question yet again because these studies are published every 10 years and they go widely unnoticed. The LaGuardia Commission in 1942, in response to the Marijuana Tax Act, published their findings that the use of marijuana did not lead to increased crime and mental illness, as uh, the Marijuana Tax Act uh, suggested. Uh, So again, uh, when we talk about I think we live in somewhat of a puritanical society and people are opposed to euphoria. When we look at patients with a terminal illness, I don't think mood elevation is an adverse experience. So in conclusion, one of the other remarks that I took, which is slightly off my topic, was the question of marijuana as a gateway drug. But you can see from this quote from the IOM report that it's not really off topic. They conclude that the present data on drug use progression neither support nor refute the suggestion that medical availability would increase drug abuse. However, this question is beyond the issues normally considered for medical use of drugs and should not be a factor in evaluating the therapeutic potential of marijuana or cannabinoids. We published in 2007 in Neurology's Pinnacle Journal a study that showed that marijuana had benefit in patients with HIV-related sensory neuropathy. The definition of a Schedule I drug is it shows no medical benefit. So I think there's a disconnect here. And talking about anniversaries, this is the 40th anniversary of this Life magazine cover. Hopefully progress can be made in the new world order in which we live. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Dr. Abrams. Our second speaker today is Dr. Robert DuPont. Dr. DuPont has been a leader in the field of drug abuse prevention and treatment for more than 30 years. He served as the first director of the National Institute of uh, Drug Abuse and uh, as the second White House drug chief, among other posts in the government. In 1978, Dr. DuPont left the government to become the founding president of the Institute for Behavior and Health. He's widely published in his field, more than 200 articles and uh, over 15 books, the most recent of which are drug testing in the schools and drug testing in the criminal justice system. Dr. DuPont maintains an active uh, practice in psychiatry, specializing in addiction and anxiety disorders, and he teaches at the Georgetown University School of Medicine. Would you please welcome our second speaker, Dr. Robert DuPont. Thank you very much, Tim. It's uh, very uh, much of a privilege for me to be here today, and I uh, look forward to uh, uh, the opportunity to answer questions and have discussions with the group. And I'm also very uh, pleased to join uh, the distinguished panel uh, that we have here. Uh, 
I, as, as Tim mentioned, have been involved in the drug issue for uh, more than 40 years. I was the first director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the institution that does the research on uh, drugs in this country, and that has done probably 90% of the research on marijuana for the entire world over this period of time. Uh, as uh, Don Abrams showed from that 1969 picture of from Life magazine, marijuana has been at the center uh, of the modern uh, drug epidemic uh, since the 1960s, and it's been very much the center of activity of government activities, including research, at the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So every year when I was there at, at NIDA, uh, we had a, a report on marijuana and health uh, that was published that uh, reported the, the latest research, and this was very widely uh, 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 reported. It was a major news event every year when NIDA published these things. Uh, the issue of medical marijuana it has been around since the beginning. Uh, Don talked about the uh, LaGuardia Commission report, uh, and that has been studied repeatedly over and over again uh, during this period of time in a variety uh, of contexts. I, I want to just read you, during my time, uh, I was the director of NIDA from 73 to 78. Uh, a major report uh, was issued, a book called The Therapeutic Potential of Marijuana, and it was by uh, Sidney Cohen and Richard Hawks, who were uh, neither of them uh, in any way uh, hostile to uh, marijuana or uh, it, its research, and certainly not uh, uh, drug warriors, either of them. And I just want to read you what this was, 1976, what the conclusion was, because it's so similar to what the Institute of Medicine uh, reported in 1999. And I'll say some words about that, too. Here's the summary. It should not be expected, nor is it anticipated, that some cannabinoid will be available commercially in the near future. The nature of approval process is such that years elapse between initial testing, however promising, and final approval. This is particularly true for a completely new chemical entity, and even more one that has a checkered reputation. Cannabis itself will never be adopted for medical indications. It contains dozens of constituents, some of which have undesirable effects. Delta-9 THC is a possible candidate, but it is more likely that a synthetic analog tailored to intensify the desired action and avoid the undesired ones will be preferred. Now, that is a very simple statement, it seems to me, and one of the things that you will find in this discussion, and I, I it certainly saw this, or at least I heard it, uh, in Don's presentation, is a distinction between smoked marijuana and cannabinoids. Cannabinoids are chemicals that are unique to the marijuana plant. And I want you to think a little bit about the, the concept of drug delivery through burning leaves as a way to get a drug into the body. And think about how that fits with modern understanding of medicine and science. Uh, I want to come back to that at the end, but I just want you to think about this has been around for quite a period of time. Round one of medical marijuana started in the late 60s, and there was a lot of pressure on the government to approve some kind of smoked marijuana, and there was a, a system set up in the 1970s that permitted patients to get government-supplied marijuana uh, and the, the uh, poster patient for that was a fellow named Bob Randall, who was on the television all the time talking about medical marijuana. 
And in that period of time, there was a lot of interest in decriminalization of marijuana, and the state initiatives at that time were all about decriminalization. We ended up having 10 states that decriminalized marijuana in the 1970s. None did after 1978. That was the turning point on marijuana and its, the uh, uh, attitudes toward marijuana and the beginning of the identification of the problems associated with smoked marijuana. That ended what I call round one of medical marijuana. It disappeared from the public debate uh, for, for more than a decade. It's picked up again in the, middle, in the early 1990s, again, as Don was talking about with these initiatives in California in 1996. But it was gone. Bob Randall was the last patient on, the, uh, on this, and it was not an issue of, of any serious discussion, although in 1986... THC was approved, and since then, any doctor has been able to prescribe THC to any patient, any time, for any indication. People often don't understand that that's perfectly available and has been since 1985, uh, without any special excitement or concern about it. And in fact, it's downgraded from Schedule II to Schedule III uh, in the Controlled Substances Act. Now, not only was 1978 a turning point for uh, the attitudes about marijuana, but related to that, that was the peak of illegal drug use in this country. In 1978, 16% of Americans, 12 and older, had used an illegal drug, mostly marijuana, in the prior 30 days. The term of art is current use. 16%. The percentage in in 2007, the most recent data, was 8%. Now, when somebody says, as Tim started, about the failure of the drug war, the anti-drug efforts, think about that. A 50% reduction since 1978 in illegal drug use, including, but not limited to marijuana, all illegal drug use. 50% reduction since 1978. That's pretty striking. But in 1992, the issue was reborn with a new round of funding and as part of a different agenda. Uh, It was no longer talked about in terms of legalization, as it had been before, but in terms of harm reduction. And part of a package of proposals that all had the characteristics of making the use of illegal drugs safer, uh, cheaper, easier. Uh, And you'll notice that is true about all of the harm reduction ideas. Now, when when Tim was talking about this report for the IOM and and, uh, response to the California initiatives, The drug czar he's talking about was Bill Clinton's drug czar, Barry McCaffrey, who is about as fair-minded, from my point of view, as a person can be. And he went to the IOM and he said, give us a report, a scientific report, about medical marijuana. And they did. And they published that report. And I want to just uh, read you a couple of things from that report about what they recommended, because it was very striking what they did, and and how anyone can read that report and think that smoked marijuana was something that they thought had a future isn't reading the report, because that isn't what they said. And it's, it's just very clear. Because marijuana is a crude THC delivery system that also delivers harmful substance, smoked marijuana should generally not be recommended for medical use. Nonetheless, marijuana is widely used for certain patient groups 
which raises both safety and efficacy issues, as in concerns. If there is a future to marijuana as a medicine, this is another quote, if there is a future to, for marijuana as a medicine, it lies in isolated compounds, the cannabinoids, and their synthetic derivatives. Inhaled cannabinoids, will, excuse me, isolated cannabinoids, will provide more reliable effects than crude plant mixtures. Therefore, the purpose of clinical trials of smoked marijuana would not be to develop marijuana as a licensed drug, but such tests could be the first step toward the development of rapid, non-smoked cannabinoid delivery systems, specific cannabinoids, not vaporized uh, leaves, specific cannabinoids to treat specific illnesses. Now, I, I think it's just call your attention to the fact that Barack Obama addressed the, the mar medical marijuana issue twice during the campaign. And one of the things he said was particularly interesting to me, because it's been presented as if he supported medical marijuana, uh, he said he wants to be treated like other abused drugs, like morphine. Well, that's very interesting to think, like morphine, because morphine is derived from opium poppies and had a long history of use of opium in the world, including lots of problems. Morphine has been approved, has been used in medicine since it was isolated in the middle 19th century, very practically, very successfully. Not a lot of controversy about that. Not a lot of abuse of morphine. But what's very interesting is morphine is seldom used because now we have synthetic alternatives, analogs of morphine. That, folks, is the future, if there is any, for cannabinoids. Not burning leaves, but specific cannabinoids, and probably, although not necessarily, probably synthetic analogs for specific illnesses. Now, the, the, what's happened since then, and you heard, is this uh, emphasis on, on state uh, ballot initiatives. And I want to ask you to think with me about three very simple questions. And, and it's, it's not a discussion about what happens to people with uh, uh, AIDS-wasting syndrome or what happens to oncology patients. It, it's about how we deal with medicine, how we how we think about and approve and make available medicine in this country. Now, first of all, I want you to think about the idea of a doctor recommending somebody to burn leaves and inhale the smoke as a drug delivery system. Now, if this is a good idea for marijuana, why in the world don't we do it for lots of other things? Why don't we, instead of having morphine, why don't we smoke opium? I don't think you have to think long on this to realize that smoke is toxic to lungs. Think about the effect of smoked marijuana in relationship to air pollution or any other smoke 
and you realize that I think we pretty well understand that smoke is not healthy. You don't want to have medicine delivered by smoke. But beyond the toxicity, you don't have any purity of the compound. That's what the IOM said. You've got hundreds of chemicals in an unstable, unpredictable mix, and that's medicine? I'm a doctor. Doctors don't prescribe medicines like that. There's a reason they don't. It makes no sense to do a medicine as smoke. Okay, that's one. Second of all, what do you think about the idea that in this country we're going to approve medicines by ballot initiatives? Does that look to you like a promising avenue for approving medicines in this country? And I'll tell you how they get by the, 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 the way they pass is by parading sick people who testify that this has helped them. How do you feel about approving medicines like that? With state legislatures, with the media? Does, does it appeal to you as a way that we ought to go, not just for this, but other things too? It doesn't appeal to me. That's what we had before we had the First Food and Drug Act. That got us in a lot of trouble. Making judgments about medicines on the basis of voting is just about the dumbest way to approve medicine I can think of. It's scary to think about that precedent. We need, we absolutely need the judgment of science and a system to evaluate all, not just this medicine, any medicine. Imperfect as the FDA is, it's a whole lot better than doing it by a ballot initiative, to me anyhow. But then there's another one that I find very interesting. The idea that each state would decide what's an approved medicine. Well, what do you think of that idea? Does that appeal to you? Well, the fact is that states are extremely ill-equipped to do the research to approve medicines. It's hard enough to do it through the mechanisms that we have for the country, including the millions of dollars that go into that. To do that on a state-by-state -state basis? Really? You think that's a great idea? I don't think that's a great idea uh, to do that. I think it's a terrible precedent. Now, the way the law works is that states can limit, now the law says states can limit a drug that's approved by the federal government, but they can't approve a drug that is not approved by the federal government. I could live with that. But the idea that you're going to approve it, state by state, I don't think that's a good precedent. I think about it. And I don't know why you'd think this would be the one thing you would, one substance that you would want to make an exception for. I, I don't get that. So I want to come back and end with, it, with this, this thought. The effort, the four decades effort to approve medical marijuana has had a useful, public result. It is the reason the research money is spent 
to study the cannabinoids. And I think they're very interesting compounds. And I think some of them may eventually become standard treatments. They haven't yet, and they may not, as both Sidney Cohen and the IOM said. But that's the test they should be subject to. And it's wonderful that we're focusing on it. So rather than the controversy leading to prohibition of the research, actually almost all of the research is because of the controversy. And I think there may very well be a positive payoff for sick people in this country as a result of that, and I welcome that. What's very odd, and I ask you to think about this, is people like me, I'm characterized, I'm the sacrificial lamb here who's opposed to this idea. Uh, people like me are said, well, they don't want it, they're, they're not humanitarian, they don't really care, they're not compassionate, uh, or they don't, they, you know, they're just uh, old bureaucrats, worn out, broken down bureaucrats, that's what I've been accused of being, and maybe there's something to that, but anyhow, think about, uh, think about this in terms of the, uh, uh, where we're trying to uh, get uh, with, with, our, with our medicines. Uh, we want to have a system that can identify substances that are going to be genuinely helpful uh, to, to uh, patients. And we want to do it in a way that protects the public health. And, and I don't think this is, this is doing that. I think it's having exactly the opposite effect. So I say, great, and, and the people who are supporting looking at the cannabinoids and wanting to find safe delivery systems and are interested in developing synthetic analogs are people like me. They are the opponents of medical marijuana. The people who want smoked dope as medicine are not interested in synthetic analogs. They're not interested in alternative delivery systems. They're not interested in something that is specific to a particular chemical. Why is that? They're about sick people. They care about sick. Why don't they want to do that? Why don't they see that this is like other medicines? I can tell you why. Because this is about smoked marijuana. This whole debate is not about sick people. It's about smoked marijuana. And do you want to have sick people be the leading edge to, to, to uh, ac wider access to marijuana? The, the New Yorker had a wonderful article about the California uh, dr drug dispensing system. Yeah. And it was very clear what was going on. Take a look at what happens. Who are the, quote, patients? What are the illnesses? I'm not saying there are not some who are perfectly legitimate, but look at what's happening. If we're going to do something like this, and the, the Institute of Medicine said maximum six months is that what we're doing? Only people who failed at all of their treatments. With careful monitoring, please. That's not what this is about. This is about a stealth approach to approving marijuana. And I say, that's another debate. But let's separate it from the issue of health, and let's protect the precedent that we've worked so hard to develop, to develop safe and effective medicines. Thank you. Okay, we're going to switch gears now from looking at the medical science of marijuana over to the politics of uh, 
marijuana. And our third speaker today is Rob Campia. Mr. Campia holds an engineering degree from Penn State University where he graduated with honors. But instead of entering into the field of engineering, uh, Mr. Campia decided to come to Washington where he set as his goal to end the government's war on marijuana users. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Marijuana Policy Project, or MPP. Uh, he founded MPP in 1995 and has been growing each year under his leadership. They now have offices not only in Washington, D.C., but in Hollywood, San Francisco, Minneapolis, and Concord, uh, New Hampshire. MPP engages in a variety of research and advocacy and has been especially active in getting these uh, initiatives on the ballot in uh, states around the country. Uh, Mr. Campy is a frequent guest on TV shows where he discusses marijuana laws, and he has testified before state assemblies and in the Congress. In 2001, there was a legendary confrontation between uh, Mr. Campy and one of the Republican congressmen, Mark Souter. Souter is a big drug warrior and got so exacerbated by Rob's testimony because he kept rebutting Mr. Souter's questions over and over again. Finally, Souter said, you are a very articulate person for an evil position. I was there when that happened. uh, In connection with today's event, MPP coordinated the testimony of dozens of medical marijuana patients and researchers as the Institute for Medicine was conducting its hearing in preparation for its final report. And there's really no better person uh, to tell us about the political developments that have happened on medical marijuana over the past 10 years and which way the political winds are now blowing. Please welcome Rob Campia. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tim, and I also want to thank the other intellectual giants at Cato for their uh, tireless efforts to uh, end marijuana prohibition and for inviting uh, me and the other panelists to talk about the more narrow issue of medical marijuana today. Uh, I thought that, because there's so much to talk about uh, on this issue, I thought it might be useful to look at the question of what has changed and what has remained the same. Uh, since March of 1999, when the IOM report was released. Um, what has stayed the same? Well, one is the arguments for and against uh, legalizing medical marijuana. Uh, that's been pretty much static over the last 10-plus uh, years. Um, the people on our side of the debate say that medical marijuana should be made legal because patients shouldn't have to face arrest in jail if they have a serious medical condition and they have the approval of their physicians to use marijuana. And we've also said consistently over the last decade or three that patients should have a safe and reliable access to marijuana. They shouldn't have to go out onto the streets and buy it from drug dealers. Uh, The opposition arguments have typically involved things like we, we should keep medical marijuana illegal because it sends the wrong message to children, uh, medical marijuana should be made remain illegal because if you make it legal, then some recreational users might get easier access to it, and uh, that uh, medical marijuana should not be made legal through legislatures or Congress or the ballot box because it should be moved through the FDA, and we have the FDA for a reason. Why not use it? And that's one of the arguments that uh, Bob DuPont was just using. Uh, I guess there's another one that he he's used and that other folks have used, which is uh, we don't smoke medicines in this country, and that's why medical marijuana should remain illegal. That's, those arguments have been pretty much the same ever since I got involved in this issue 19 years ago. Another thing that's remained the same is that the federal government has do, been doing its best to block 
efforts to get uh, marijuana approved as a prescription medicine through the FDA. Uh, the way it works is that you have NIDA that has the supply of marijuana. FDA uh, gives approval to use marijuana on human subjects, and then the DEA has to give approval for the actual uh, handling and storage of, of the marijuana, uh, also the access to it. The, the FDA has actually not been the problem, as I'm sure Dr. Abrams can also attest to. The FDA is willing to uh, approve uh, clinical uh, trials for marijuana on human subjects. Uh, NIDA is occasionally willing to part uh, with its marijuana, although NIDA has been problematic at times, and no one knows that better than Dr. Abrams, who had enormous troubles back in the uh, mid-'90s trying to get a supply of marijuana from the University of Mississippi, where NIDA has its farm, and that... Um, the DEA has been the primary culprit uh, with um, moving this issue forward because you need a reliable supply, a private supply of marijuana in order to use the consistent same supply to move it through the FDA approval process so that eventually a for-profit corporation or a non-profit organization could then be the pharmaceutical uh, company to uh, disseminate it. Uh, just like Pfizer or any other uh, company might do. But the DEA refuses to allow a private supply of marijuana to be produced in the U.S., uh, specifically the University of Massachusetts at Amherst has been trying since 2001 to get a marijuana uh, production facility going there so that we could use a standardized uh, supply, standardized dose mm. to, to finish clinical trials to get marijuana approved. The DEA has been blocking the, the startup of that, and in fact... Uh, just a week before uh, Obama took office on January 20th, uh, the outgoing DEA administrator uh, said once again that they are not going to allow uh, that facility to start, even though the DEA administrative law judge actually recommended that it should be allowed to start. So that's how obstructionist the DEA is, which uh, makes it virtually impossible then to move marijuana through the FDA approval process, whether it's smoked marijuana or whether it's using a vaporizer or some other route of administration, we don't have any ability to move it through the process. And another thing, of course, that stayed the same is public opinion. Public opinion has been um, steady and supportive for medical marijuana uh, over the decades. Every single poll I've ever seen, every single poll that my organization has commissioned has shown both nationally and in every single state where the poll has been done that a clear majority uh, of Americans support removing criminal penalties for medical marijuana. That has been consistent for decades, which is why we're allowed and able to pass our ballot initiatives. Um, what has changed? Well, the two major things that have changed in the last 10 years are state policies and, and federal policy. Uh, on the state level, uh, nine out of the 13 states that have legalized medical marijuana have done so since the IOM issued its report 10 years ago. Uh, before the report was issued, you had California, Washington, Oregon, and Alaska. But then since March of 1999, you've had five other states pass ballot initiatives, namely Colorado, Nevada, Maine, Montana, and most recently Michigan, where we had a crushing 63% victory in Michigan on November 4th, where medical marijuana, by the way, got more votes than Obama did in Michigan. And uh, also in the last 10 years, four state legislatures have legalized medical marijuana. Uh, Hawaii, New Mexico, Vermont, and Rhode Island. Now, what, are, what do these laws look like? Well, the, basically the model is that uh, the, the laws say if you have one of a specified number of medical conditions, cancer, AIDS, MS, glaucoma, changes state to state, but it's usually uh, those conditions plus chronic pain, uh, and you have your doctor's approval, 
then you can get an ID card from the State Department of Health, which then is an indicator to the police that if they stumble upon you, that you're actually allowed to have a limited amount of marijuana and a limited number of marijuana plants to use for medical purposes. Now, the laws vary from state to state, but that's the core of what uh, most of the state laws uh, actually uh, allow for. Now, things are moving quickly now. Uh, medical marijuana bills are moving through a number of state legislatures simultaneously. We're making progress in New York, where New York could very well become the 14th state to legalize medical marijuana this year. Uh, Illinois, we've had more progress this year than in any previous year. Minnesota, uh, we are very close to passing that bill. Uh, we have a governor problem, but we always have a governor problem wherever we work, so um, we're not letting that deter us. And um, New Hampshire, New Jersey are also in queue to legalize medical marijuana, if not this year, then in the next year or two. And also we're slated to put a medical marijuana initiative on the ballot in Arizona in November of 2010. The polling there is extremely supportive. It's 65 percent. I don't see a way we're going to lose that initiative. And so Arizona is in the queue now. Um, there's even, there's so much support for medical marijuana. Not only have state legislatures not meddled with these laws, but state legislatures, once they're passed, actually like to expand the laws by uh, ideally, in, in the instances where it's been debated recently, is to actually allow for distribution of medical marijuana and sale of medical marijuana through pharmacy-like establishments. Uh, California expanded its law. Oregon expanded its law. Vermont expanded its law a couple years after each of those laws was originally enacted. Rhode Island and Montana are currently uh, debating expanding their laws. And in Maine, uh, the, uh, there is going to be a question on the ballot in November of this year statewide to expand the Maine medical marijuana law to allow for the sale of medical marijuana to patients. Uh, the other thing that's changed dramatically over the last 10 years is federal policy on this issue. Uh, you know, we heard a little bit about the Clinton administration back in, uh, after the California initiative passed in November of 1996. The Clinton administration uh, reacted by threatening physicians uh, who recommend medical marijuana. Uh, that Those actions were blocked in federal court because it's a, it's a free speech issue where mm -hmm. physicians should be able to discuss the medical use of marijuana and in a doctor's office, just like physicians can discuss chicken soup or echinacea or any other number of remedies or alleged remedies that are not approved by the FDA. So that was the first uh, battle uh, on the federal level after uh, the California initiative passed. And then uh, you had the Clinton administration uh, also threatening civil lawsuits against medical marijuana dispensaries in California. That litigation did not go well. That uh, the good guys, that means our side, uh, we lost in, at the U.S. Supreme Court level uh, on that one. Uh, when Bush took office, the raids uh, and the, the war on uh, medical marijuana at the federal level became much more hostile. You saw uh, a few months, I guess it was probably 10 months after Bush took office, he started raiding, the DEA started raiding uh, medical marijuana uh, dispensaries in California almost entirely. And, uh, but it was really almost a, um, a sick a perversion of federal priorities, where it was just a few weeks after 9-1-1 in 2001, where uh, the uh, Justice Department spokesperson was uh, trying to explain what they had done, and they said, and this is a Susan Dryden said, quote, the recent enforcement is indicative that we have not lost our priorities in other areas since September 11th. The Attorney General and the administration have been very clear we will be aggressive, 
that's sick. Uh, when the country's under attack, going into two wars, uh, you, you don't want to say that uh, going after medical marijuana patients and dispensaries in California is, should be a priority for law enforcement. Um, that then led to the Bush administration threatening civil asset forfeiture against landlords that rented out their properties to medical marijuana dispensaries. And as I said, most recently, the final action was a week before January 20th of this year to block the uh, production of medical marijuana for research purposes in Amherst, Massachusetts. Things are now different. Uh, with Obama, who was uh, a couple times during the campaign, uh, had said that he didn't see that rating uh, medical marijuana dispensaries in California as a priority and that he would have the DEA and the Justice Department focusing on other priorities. Uh, his spokesperson then reiterated that uh, a few weeks after he took office. And then the statement that got so much media attention in late February by Eric Holder, who's the new attorney general, where Eric Holder uh, validated and verified that, in fact, that is uh, the new plan under the, federal, uh, the new federal government that uh, took office on January 20th. Holder said, quote, what the president said during the campaign, you'll be surprised to know, will be consistent with what we'll be doing in law enforcement. He was my boss during the campaign. He is formally and technically and by law my boss now. What he said during the campaign is now American policy. So now we have uh, a president in office and the top cop of the nation who are saying good things about allowing uh, medical marijuana to uh, blossom, as it were, on the state level without federal interference. Um, so in conclusion, where do I see this going? Uh, I think we're going to pass a slate of medical marijuana laws to add to the 13 that we already have, and I listed off some of those states. Uh, we are going to see, I think, a federal government that's going to be focusing uh, its law enforcement resources on things that are more important than going after uh, sick people in states where medical marijuana is legal. and. Uh, if that, in fact, holds true, that's going to encourage people who might have otherwise been on the fence to then start up uh, medical marijuana distribution facilities, call them dispensaries, and it'll allow states to actually regulate these dispensaries, whereas heretofore the state governments have been a little bit nervous about regulating a system of distribution and taxation that's illegal and could be rated under federal law. I think you're going to see that not only in California but in other states these medical marijuana dispensaries, these pharmacy-like establishments are going to pop up, generate tax revenues for the state governments, and therefore, once you're generating real money for a state, it's going to be hard to then um, get rid of those establishments. I think that's what you're going to see over the next few years. However, long-term, I'm skeptical, hopeful, but skeptical that we're actually going to win the ultimate battle at the federal level, which would be either to get the federal government permanently and completely out of the medical marijuana business or to get marijuana approved as a prescription medicine, I, I suspect that what will happen is that this country, given the tough economic times that we're in and the uh, rising level of support for legalizing marijuana uh, for recreational use, the need for increased tax revenues, and the disgust that most people have with the drug war, uh, and especially with the drug war-related violence that's popping up out of Mexico and crossing our borders, which is prohibition-related violence and not drug use-related violence that I think all these confluence of factors are going to lead us as a country to perhaps end marijuana prohibition entirely and tax and regulate marijuana like alcohol before we even have a chance to uh, legalize medical marijuana across the entire country. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, we're going to have a very brief uh, second round where each speaker is going to have just three minutes to make a point in response to what some of the other speakers have, have said, and then we're going to uh, take your questions. Dr. Abrams, three minutes. Well, I just I guess I want to say that we don't have a health care delivery system in this country. We have a disease management system, and it's broken. And I think it's largely the Western pharmaceutical company-dominated paradigm that's caused the failure of our ability to support uh, the healthcare system in this nation. I think if there's a plant uh, that has a balance of compounds in it that provide the yin and the yang, if you will, so that the THC components are actually balanced by some of the other cannabinoids, that there's benefit from the terpenoids and flavonoids in the plant, that uh, developing isolated compounds is really, again, part of the pharmaceutically dominated paradigm and against uh, the concept of, of plants as medicine that's, that is used in many, many parts of the, of the world where the largest populations live. Uh, also, this, the damaging effects of smoke. My friend and colleague Donald Tashkin at the University of California, Los Angeles, has spent a 40-year career looking at the damaging effects of inhaled cannabis and has found perhaps that it may cause some alterations under the electron microscope to alveolar macrophages. Uh, there may be a slight increase in chronic bronchitis, but has otherwise failed to demonstrate any incredible toxicities. In fact, people that smoke cannabis in addition to tobacco have less chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And in a large study that they published last year or two years ago on 1,300 lung cancer patients in Los Angeles, they found that those who smoke cannabis regularly had a 26% reduction in the risk of lung cancer compared to those who didn't. So, and we don't smoke leaves. People aren't smoking leaves anymore. That was the 60s. Okay, Dr. DuPont, three minutes. Uh, I, I think that uh, the way uh, uh, Tim started us off, and certainly the way Ron ended us ended this, uh, is 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 very important, especially in this context of the Cato Institute, uh, and that is to, to look at the larger question of how the country handles uh, drugs of abuse, of which cannabis is one, but there's quite a long uh, list of those drugs. Uh, and I think it is a very positive sign uh, that the debate has moved away from uh, the harm reduction agenda, which, is, which was kind of a, a way of fudging the issue, uh, on to dealing with the central issue of what do we want to do about all of these drugs. And, and Ron was in, interested in the – pointed out about the violence related to uh, – uh, to drug trafficking and, as he says, related to prohibition. Uh, I think it's, it's interesting to think about what is the relationship of alcohol uh, to crime, and the answer is about 40 percent of people in prisons are there because of alcohol. It, there's no, no mafia involved in that. So that there's lots of problems with drugs also in terms of crime that don't have anything to do with the trafficking. But I think the thing that is disturbing me about the current debate is the people who act as if harm reduction is a way to take out drug trafficking. And in fact, harm reduction, every one of the ideas, actually increases the incentive to traffic. The only way to take out the traffic is to legalize all drugs for everybody. You don't stop the traffickers by legalizing marijuana. 
that's a very small part of a very big problem. So I welcome that debate, and I think we can do better than we've been doing in the past. But, of course, I don't think just making these drugs freely available is a really smart uh, public health policy. But I think especially in this context, that's the issue we should be talking about. And I think getting away from thinking about medical marijuana as a way to kind of stealth achieve the, quote, goal of legalization of drugs would be a very important step forward, and I hope we do take that. Thank you. Uh, Rob, three minutes. Uh, Just a quick correction there. Uh, I'm not an advocate uh, or a spokesperson for harm reduction, uh, but I will say that uh, harm reductionists do not actually say that harm reduction will decrease prohibition-related violence. That's not one of the key arguments that they make. Uh, Harm reduction is a policy where, in the context of prohibition, what can you do to reduce the harm of drugs? In the context of prohibition, what can so if your harm reductionists aren't even calling for an end to prohibition, therefore you can't reduce prohibition-related violence in Mexico and elsewhere. So that's just a quick uh, correction. However, with your original remarks, I wanted to say uh, comment on two things. One is you noted that uh, in the context of prohibition, uh, drug use rates fell from 16 percent in 1978 yes. to 8 percent in 1992. It, no, in 2007. 2007. Yeah. So in the context of prohibition, usage rates fell. But then, depending on what year you want to look at, you could say that under the context of prohibition, the usage rates rose from 1937, where no one except a couple of jazz musicians were using marijuana, mm-hmm. up to 16 percent in 1978. So the first, uh, what, four decades of prohibition of marijuana, usage rates increased by tens of thousands of percent. So it's careful to pick what years you want to look at because what we find over time is that usage rates go up and then they go down, and then they go up and then they go down. And I promise you they will go up or down next year (laughs) and so on and so forth in the years to come. And this is all in the context of prohibition where we're destroying people's lives and wasting taxpayer money. Um, Finally, um, the question of why do we try to declare medicines at the ballot box I'll be the first to admit it's not our preferred mode of activity, uh, our mechanism of change. Uh, The ideal would be there would be no federal obstructionism on medical marijuana research. We could have a private production facility, move through the FDA approval process, probably by using a vaporizer rather than smoked marijuana. Once marijuana is approved as a prescription medicine, patients across the country would be able to use it no matter what state they're in. We could save our money, not do any more ballot initiatives, and then we could spend all of our money working to end marijuana prohibition. That's the ideal. However, if the DEA continues to obstruct the supply of marijuana that we need to do that research, then we're forced to do the political route. Since this is a political war, after all, it's not obviously just based in science. Okay, we're going to open it up and uh, take your questions now. I do have three requests. Please, and when I call on you, wait for our microphone to arrive so that everybody can hear your question. Second, please keep your questions brief so that we can get to as many people as possible. And when I call on you, please identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have. No, the gentleman right next to you. Wait for the microphone. Good afternoon. Great um, presentation, and and I want to thank uh, Mr. DuPont. In particular, I think you made some excellent points. I do have a question about uh, how we test medical marijuana with uh, respect to our nearest neighbors to the north in Canada. How do they handle this issue? 
And do you advocate and foresee, I just want to get a specific uh, quote, do you specifically see within, say, the next generation uh, an open society that allows um, citizens to use marijuana recreationally as well as perhaps other uh, what we consider to be illegal drugs at this point? Uh, One of the things that is approved in Canada and not in the United States is Sativex, which is a, uh, a, a, a product that is put under the tongue to be absorbed uh, and is controlled doses of THC and cannabidiol, which are thought to be the two uh, most active products. And I think that is an idea. That is a pharmaceutical product, and I think it's, it's to me, that's the future, uh, whether it's Sativex or something else. Uh, and I, I welcome that. And in fact, any other pharmaceutical that would approve, go through those processes. I was at the hearing uh, in the Congress where the FDA testified and said the door is wide open to review, reviewing what they called a botanical, never mind leaves, uh, resins, uh, to, to burning uh, pro- plant products as an approved drug. They said, come on in. The door is open. We'll ha- be happy to take the data. But I do not think the future is going to be uh, a wide-open use of recreational drugs, including marijuana, uh, What Ron's vision. But I think that's a debate we need to have. And I can pretty much guarantee you that no matter what happens with the debate, it's going to go on for a long time. I think people very much underestimate uh, the impact of drugs on the human brain and the consequences of that. Uh, I think when you look at 110 million Americans who drink alcohol and 55 million who smoke tobacco, those drugs are much less reinforcing, much less attractive than the whole list of the drugs that are now illegal. And to put those into the Safeway stores, to put those into the 7-Eleven or some other mechanism, or to have doctors prescribe for recreational purposes, you know doctors don't do that. Uh, That's not a medical uh, function. Uh, I think the thing that's most striking about the problem with legalization, just end here, is there's never been a proposal for how to do it. It's very striking that that what happens to the proponents of legalization always talk about the harms of prohibition. They don't get to the question of, well, how are you going to approve it? But you see, if you put any restrictions on it, then the incentive for the traffickers remains. And I'll put uh, what happens with gambling. When we had legal gambling, do you think that put illegal gambling out of business? Not close. And why not? Because you tax it, number one, and number two, you put restrictions on it. So legal gambling has actually built the illegal market, not reduced it. And the same thing would happen with legalized drugs if you had restrictions on it, if you didn't sell it in the Safeway and the 7-Eleven. Okay. I think Dr. Abrams. Yeah. The answer to the question is cannabis is available in Canada. It's grown in a government facility, and it's available uh, physicians can write prescriptions, and it's available. Cannabis. Sir, did you have, have a question? Yeah. Uh, my name is Steve Hank, and I have no particular affiliation. just think it's an interesting issue. Um, my question is to Dr. DuPont. You listed a lot of entities and, and systems that you said, we don't want them deciding how drugs should be administered and making these decisions. We, um, and you went to the state, and you don't want it by apparently referendum. And uh, you somewhat addressed that, Mr. But don't you realize that having the FDA 
that's a political organization. I mean, it's well, it's appointed by it's part of the government. It's appointed by political people. It's not. I well, let me finish. Uh, I didn't uh, say anything. I just shook my head. Oh, okay. Well, it looked like you. Okay. My point is, uh, what's wrong with letting the individual decide all these things for himself? I, he, he has access to his doctor, yeah. and his, him and his doctor can work it out. And and what about the fact that 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 people are as are different? They have all different side effects. They have different assessments of risk. They are they all have, you know, different. Uh, they have different. In, uh, Things they're willing to give up and the sacrifice and risk. Why not let the individual yeah. decide for himself? Okay. Well, that is certainly a libertarian view, and I think it makes a lot of sense. You just got to be prepared to deal with the consequences of that. And the consequences could be, I think, pretty devastating. Let me just point out one thing that I think is relevant to this. The fastest growing drug problem in the United States today is the non-medical use of prescription drugs. No mafia is involved. In the United States, more people are dying from overdose deaths, from prescribed opiates, where there's no mafia, than heroin and cocaine combined. That, to me, is the canary in the coal mine when it comes to legalizing drugs. Take the mafia out, and the drugs are still going to be very devastating. And prescription drug abuse is a good model. More Americans first used prescription opiates non-medically last year than first used marijuana. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, Howard Wildridge from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Question for Dr. DuPont. As a, as a doctor and a scientist, and also the combination of being a federal bureaucrat, about 1991 or so, uh, the federal government approved <clears throat> monthly uh, about 13 patients to have 300 marijuana cigarettes per day. Yeah. And I think now there's still five or six that have not died. But what's interesting is... Uh, the federal government, who supplies the marijuana off the Nida Farm in Mississippi, yeah. has never, ever brought these 13 patients in to check their pulmonary functions, to check all the th- things they should be checking on. Can you tell us why they've never wanted to learn what happens to the body when you take in 300 cigarettes a day, or do you have a nice conspiracy theory? I don't have any conspiracy theory. I'm sorry, uh, three, yeah, 300 per month, uh, 10 per day. Uh, I don't have any conspiracy theory at all, but I don't know why it would be any different for somebody who was legally approved for somebody else. Uh, and uh, uh, Ron was talking, I think it was mentioned about Don Tashkin. Uh, or, 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 that was uh, Don. Uh, uh, I think he's done very good work on this, and I think it's a very important topic. But it's just hard for me to imagine that uh, smoke is not a problem for lungs. I, it's just... Yeah, Ethan Ethan Russo. Oh, sorry, Ethan Russo has uh, done an analysis of the living uh, compassionate use patients and found no particular adverse effects in any of the modalities that he studied. Ma'am, my name is Ayana Najuma. I'm with Lincoln McLeod. I have two questions. One for uh, Mr. Cambia. Can you speak of uh, cases, you've talked about the legislative implications and the work that you guys are doing in that area, but the flip side of that, I was chatting with uh, a person here about the uh, Jonathan Magby case, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. Can you speak to cases of how that has an implication to the general public when uh, medical marijuana is not accepted 
And then the second question is for Dr. DuPont, you talked about morphine. Why has that worked? And I don't know the history of morphine, but how has that worked where you say that medical marijuana would not? Well, the issue of Jonathan Magby is one of the more tragic uh, instances where a patient got caught in the crossfire of this war. Uh, He was a a quadriplegic who was uh, arrested for marijuana in D.C. He wasn't Mm -hmm. apologetic because he said that he used it for medical purposes. Uh, The judge, to teach him a lesson, put him in a D.C. jail for 10 days. He did not have proper medical treatment, and he uh, suffocated to death in the D.C. jail. Uh, That happened a few years ago. Um, there are other other horror stories. This is not a, a theoretical issue for us, or not a philosophical issue. Just two more horror stories. Uh, one in Iowa, uh, Ray Lakers, who has MS, he's probably 50 or 55 years old, uh, was arrested for less than one gram of marijuana in 2005, and he spent six days in the county jail. And finally, in Minnesota, a veteran and a retired machinist named Jerome Schaefer, who's 63, spent a night in jail after being arrested for marijuana possession upon completing chemotherapy treatment for cancer at a hospital, police had to place handcuffs over his hospital ID bracelet. Um, this, these are the real people who are caught in the crossfire. So when uh, Dr. DuPont and others talk about preferring this system or that system over initiatives and so forth, delaying changing these laws, however those delays are accomplished, means that real people uh, are suffering and arrested and sometimes dying. So these are pretty serious implications for people who are advocating the continued prohibition of marijuana or medical marijuana. Uh, Back to the question of morphine. Uh, Opium uh, has morphine and codeine in it, and they have been isolated and used as purified chemicals uh, for uh, nearly 200 years. Uh, And uh, so what we don't do is use any more opium as a way of of delivering those drugs, those substances. We'd use the purified morphine. And so my analogy was to say medical marijuana is 420 different chemicals uh, and more than 2,000 once it's burned. And that's not how we do medicine. We do medicine by identifying particular chemicals and delivering those particular chemicals. So I used the example from uh, Barack Obama saying that what, what he wants to do is to treat marijuana uh, or the medical issues around marijuana like we do morphine, that would mean a purified chemical, and it actually means really, as practical, synthetic analogs. What we now use is synthetic opiates, not morphine. Morphine is used very, very limited use, and I would think that might happen with cannabinoids. I don't know what Barack Obama was saying or thinking, but I would think that maybe he means it should be Schedule Two instead of Schedule One. Morphine is something that we can prescribe with our uh, restricted prescriptions, and cannabis is Schedule One. I can prescribe it because I have a Schedule One license because I'm doing research, but nobody really can prescribe cannabis because there's no place people can take a prescription to be filled. So perhaps rather than your interpretation of, I don't know, I have not spoken to President Obama as to what he means. But THC is approved. That's the analogy to morphine. Well, obviously that's not what he's saying because he's saying medical marijuana and it's not THC. He was using the analogy to morphine, and I'm saying THC is the active... You might be reading more into the analogy. I don't know. It's direct. No, no, no. I want to move on. Yes, sir. Over here. 
Hi, uh, Richard Kennedy. I'm a retired CIA analyst, and I'm also an economist, so I'm a member of a profession that is generally pretty hostile to drug prohibition. That is, we believe there are more effective ways of controlling drugs through taxation and regulation, and I'd cite tobacco as an example, where we've also reduced the use by half without arresting anyone at any level. But my uh, aid question would, would be this, that a way to circumvent the whole medical marijuana issue would be simply to legalize it for adults, and then a person could use it for medical or other purposes, just as a person today is free to smoke as much tobacco as they want if they thought that would provide them any medical benefits. Although, so uh, my question then for Dr. DuPont is, are you confident that marijuana is a substantially less dangerous drug than tobacco? Uh, no, I think it has many fa f bad fa characteristics that tobacco doesn't have. You don't have, uh, for example, marijuana is a leading uh, cause of auto accidents and deaths in this country. Tobacco isn't. That's, oh, that's uh, ridiculous. Of course it that's is. That's totally uh, ridiculous. It, I mean, we don't have to listen to that, do we? It's ridiculous. Come on. Come on. Well, oh, ridiculous. We'll have that oh, get a rip. Time. People yeah, drive better. The issue of uh, legalization is a good idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm almost done with this, I think. All right, do you want to make one more point? Then we'll no, no, I'm, I can't listen to any of this anymore. I'm ready to cut Okay, it. on that contentious note, we're going to adjourn. <laughs> Would you please thank our panel for a good discussion? <laughs>